This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.35, Aftermath, and as always, we are your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and pretty soon I'm going to need to get used to saying two point, but not quite yet. And I'm Nina, new Gundam fan, and I think we might have too many research topics. (laughs) Yeah, you might be right about that. So a quick update on where the podcast is right now. As you know, we just finished up our regular coverage of First Gundam. We went through all the episodes. We talked about all the episodes. Now we need to cover the compilation movies and then the moment everyone has been waiting for. Zeta! Yep, we will move on to covering Zeta episode by episode. But before we do that, we are going to take a couple of episodes to transition from First Gundam to Zeta. This is the first of those episodes. And in this episode, we are going to talk about the whole first Gundam show as a single unit, our feelings, our thoughts, our impressions of the whole thing. This week, we also discuss Amaro and Char's rivalry viewed through their combats and Yakeato, or the generation of ashes. Next week, we are going to talk about the implications where we think the show is going to go based on how it ended. And I'm going to ask Nina to speculate wildly (laughs) about what she thinks Zeta is going to be about. I'm going to give her some very, very limited information in order to help her. I'm going to tell her how much time passes between First Gundam and Zeta, both in the real world and in the Universal Century. And we'll see what she comes up with. We are also going to include some more research topics next week because we had so many great ideas while we were watching First Gundam for things that either didn't fit into any particular episode or fit entirely too well into every episode. So a few more of those are going to get covered next week and we'll cover a few more of them during the compilation movie episodes. Then we're going to start Zeta with a kind of episode zero in which we will establish what's changed in Gundam, in anime, in Japan, and in the world. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 89 patrons. Whoa! This was a big week for patron signups. Thank you all, and especially thanks to our newest patrons, Sam N., Randy H., David R., John S., Matt S., Daniel P., John C., and Matt B. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord and bonus content, you can do so at GundamPodcast.com Patreon. We are also so close to our first funding goal. At $1,000 a month, we are going to invest in new, brand new audio equipment, which we desperately need for when we have more than two people <laughs> recording at a time. So anytime we have guests... The current setup is not ideal and creates (laughs) a lot more work for Tom when it comes to editing. A new setup will streamline our process. Hopefully, will enable us to 
make more bonus content. <laughs> and it will make the content we make right now sound better. If you can believe it. <laughs> we would also like to extend our thanks to some fans who have been interacting with us and supporting us on Instagram. In particular, I'd like to thank at the Green Wonder, Another Holden, Minosian Mondo, Calculan, Thick Gunplas Only, Squid Eye, Gundam Fascination, and Kamau Zeta. And don't worry, Calculan, we appreciate all of the dad jokes. <laughs> I almost did a spit take during Thick Gundams Only, or was it Gunpla? Or... Thick Gunpla Only. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at a mouthful of tea, and that would have been bad. <laughs> Since I'm looking into a mic and at my computer. <laughs> We're doing something a little bit different this week. For the past 34 weeks, every week we have watched between one and two episodes of Mobile Suit Gundam, and then we've discussed it, analyzed it, and researched each episode in pretty extreme depth. But last week, we reviewed the last two episodes of Mobile Suit Gundam, so we don't have an episode to watch this week. But last week, we really focused on those two episodes as episodes. We didn't talk much about the series as a whole or its conclusion. So this week, we are going to step back, look at the whole series retrospectively, and think about what it all means, how it all works together, and talk about our overall impressions. And I want to start by asking Nina, this was the first Gundam series that you watched? Correct. Did you like it? I did. I was very satisfied with the series as a whole. There are two things that I really appreciated here, sort of above and beyond everything else. The first, and this is common to, I think, a lot of anime, certainly not all of it, but there are a lot of anime that are written with an end in mind. It's not a series that is going to go on and on as long as they can still get a studio to pay for more seasons, and then eventually they'll figure out how to wrap it up. <laughs> They had a cohesive whole narrative in their minds when they set out to create it. And I think that shows. Even though the series was shortened from 52 down to only 43 episodes. Yeah. And the other thing that I most appreciated is a real sense of character development and character change over time. Mm -hmm. But in a way that never felt, it never felt as if the show <laughs> was like, turning on the bright neon signage, look, look, so-and-so has developed as a person, <laughs> see? It felt subtle, it felt understated. Mm -hmm. So I have I have comments about characters who I think got shortchanged a little bit and characters who I think were well-developed. And then I have some comments about how I think that the um, what you sort of think the point of the show is going to be at the beginning is not necessarily what it ends up being about at the end. Yeah, okay. One of the risks when you have character development on this scale, when you have characters who are really fundamentally changing the sorts of people they are during the course of a show's runtime, is you always run the risk of going too far too fast and having character development that doesn't feel honest and doesn't make sense for the characters. Doesn't given, feel earned. Yeah. The character development has to be responsive. It has to be connected to things that are happening to the characters. So that's always a risk. I think First Gundam 
for the most part, really does succeed at showing this character development in an earned way. Even when we see really surprising character turns, like Shar through the second half of the series, where what we thought was his driving motivation for almost the whole show disappears. Mm -hmm. And he really focuses on Lala and new types and like esoteric new type philosophy and new type supremacy instead of his original original (laughs) motivations of like, be the best, destroy the Gundam, kill the zombies. Even though that's surprising and kind of unpredictable, it's still believable. I thought Kai and Hayato both got very nice character development arcs. Mm-hmm. I thought uh, Frabo and Sela both got really good character development arcs. I felt like Bright and Mirai got shortchanged. Yeah, you've mentioned that to me before, and I think I agree with you. Towards the mid-series, we get really good character development of them, Mm -hmm. but they are more or less abandoned by the final, I would say, third of the series. (laughs) Nothing else of any significance happens with them. Yeah. And so they feel like loose ends. Especially Mirai's story, because through the side six episodes, Mirai really seems to be developing a lot episode to episode. And then after side six, after Slager dies at Solomon, it just sort of ends. Yeah, we get this sense through the side six episodes that that she really values this new turn her life has taken, that it's given meaning to her and to what she does with her time mm-hmm. in a way that maybe she didn't have before and that that's very important to her. Mm-hmm. But we don't get much of anything in the aftermath of Slegger except for Bright being very nice to her. We don't get much of anything about her brush with command. We... We don't yeah. get a sense of of the denouement <laughs> there. Yeah. The part after the climactic events. And similarly for Bright, we see him have crises of confidence. We see we get these like little brushes of his own uncertainty about what new types mean mm-hmm. for humanity, for his own life. And then it's just dropped. And maybe they wanted to leave that open for later, but they didn't know they were going to have a later. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the two of them... Everyone else, it sort of feels like things get wrapped, right? Hayato contends with his feelings of envy and insufficiency surrounded by all of these very sort of incredibly gifted people Mm -hmm. and finds value in what he does. Frabo learns to accept that relationships change over time and that just because they change doesn't mean they're bad Mm -hmm. and that she can accept that her friendship with Amuro has become something else, a different sort of friendship. Yeah, her friendship with Amuro, the boy next door, the childhood friend, she can accept that that was not, in fact, merely the precursor to inevitable marriage, right? That their friendship doesn't have to end in a romance. She's also clearly found a new sense of confidence and competence Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in her role on the bridge. Like, she's not only good for mothering people. (laughs) She's also very capable. You know, Kai has a heart and actually cares about these people and actually cares about helping them. It's interesting with Kai because his arc as a character wraps up real early in the show. (laughs) But it does wrap up. And so it feels satisfying in a way that Bright and Mirai don't. In case you're wondering, I would say Kai's arc really wraps in the couple of episodes after Miharu dies, when he's thinking about her and how he's not going to let sorrow and depression like ruin him, mm-hmm. but that he loved and misses her and he's still sad that she's gone, but that he's going to keep fighting. And yeah, that that to me felt like the wrap on him. Mm-hmm. 
I'm especially interested in what you said about Char, because I think that happens a bit for the series as a whole in terms of what we maybe think it's going to be about early on is not necessarily what it ends up being about. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that earlier. I'm really end. interested in what you mean by that. So... Because, of course... Going into this, I've seen it before, I know where the series is going, and you haven't. So you're having a much more like honest experience with this show, and I'd really love to hear it. I would say that in the first couple of episodes, what I remember having a sense of was sort of the collateral damage of war, how in our modern era, war affects everyone. Like There are no non-combatants, there are no true civilians, war harms everyone, and much more of a struggle to survive kind of a feeling. Mm -hmm. I would say that by the end, there's much less sense of that. We have so much confidence in the skills, the ability of the white base crew. And they've proven themselves so many times. And they have a certain level of confidence in themselves mm -hmm. that this doesn't really feel like struggle to survive. And... After Lala's death, we don't really have a like, oh, no, look at all these civilians being horribly affected by the war. We haven't had much of that, really. Not since the return to space. Yeah. So it ends up feeling much more about like, why does war happen? And could we prevent it? And the pointlessness of, <laughs> of war. <laughs> so I'm going to highlight something that comes up in the very last episode. Whenever something comes up in the very last episode, any lines in the very last episode are always, you always have to look at them more carefully. They're always more important. Extra meaning. Because of their placement within the narrative. There's that exchange between Shar and Amaro when they're talking about Lala right before they start fighting again. This is after their mobile suits have been destroyed. And Amaro says, why did you involve, why did you involve Lala in this? She was never meant to be a warrior. And Shar says the war was good for her. She never would have reached her potential without the war. And of course, that connects to what you were just saying about the show as a whole, about the white base, the civilian crew that turn into these very confident, very powerful warriors. Hearing you restate it, I'm having a sudden light bulb moment. Because the first time I watch that episode, I see it purely as a sort of debate about new types in society, right? Amaro sees new types in society and thinks, we never have to have war again. Like, new types can truly understand each other in a way that would mean humanity would never have to go to war. Shar says new types are the most powerful weapon that has ever existed, and that's just how it is. Like, war is just a fact of life, and new types will win all the wars. But you could look at it and see instead differing perspectives on the development of human society, just like regular old human society. Think of the amount of technology that comes out of warfare mm -hmm. and war-related research. Mm -hmm. And you have Amaro, who this is going to sound weird for me to say, but is fundamentally representing the pacifist view that we, human beings, are not made to fight and kill each other, mm -hmm. that we shouldn't have to. Yeah. And that if we could just communicate better with each other, we w could get to a point where we wouldn't need to fight wars anymore. Mm -hmm. And Char taking the fundamental view that war is what leads to the advancement of human society. And that we're very good at it. And that it's inevitable. And we just need to accept that the people who win wars are going to be in charge. And that war is going to lead to the betterment of those people. Yeah. Which is a pretty dark outlook, but not an uncommon one. Yeah. 
And the show, the show really doesn't tell you that one or the other of them is correct. You think so? You think you think the show takes a position on that? <laughs> Amuro wins the fight. Amuro wins. Amuro is also our protagonist. We also have Sela, who is the short end of the triangle <laughs> in all these scenes. <laughs> I love that expression. <laughs> she's there. She's part of it. She's not one of the most important parts. <laughs> we'll have to keep using that. <laughs> Uh, she clearly thinks her brother's aims and stated philosophy are abhorrent. Mm -hmm. I think the show is sympathetic to Char, but I don't think that means it thinks he is equally correct. Mm. <laughs> I think we're meant to see him as cold, manipulative. Uh, you know, he's got these creepy, grandiose plans. Mm-hmm. He lies constantly to everyone in all circumstances. He's never honest about who he is or what he wants with pretty much anyone, even the people he sort of kind of is close to and maybe a little bit cares about. And he doesn't really care about anybody who can't do anything for him. He seems to have no compunctions about sacrificing those that he commands. And he really has no compunctions about like, killing people, full stop. I think we're meant to see him as a little bit mad. And yet, also in a way, very seductive. Oh, I don't absolutely. mean I don't mean like not sexually, right? But in the same way that a lot of really terrible philosophy, when presented in the right kind of way, can be enticing. Mm -hmm. See anyone who, as a young person, ever totally misunderstood the point of Fight Club? <laughs> <laughs> that is, it's funny that you should bring up that reference because Tyler Durden is a very Char-like figure. And he espouses that same philosophy that it is through fighting that we achieve our truest self, not through the things that we fight for, but literally through the act of fighting, we are improved as people. And that a society without violence is itself a like a harmful and degraded society. And a lie, fundamentally, that it's that it's somehow a, a delusion to think that humanity can live that way yeah. and a harmful one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the end game of the show felt different than I expected. The other part that I would have expected if it had stayed on that fight for survival kind of a track would be for some kind of, I'm going to use the word again because it's the right word, denouement. Because the, the fight is the climax. And we start getting the denouement basically from like, everybody's waiting for Amuro to come out. Mm -hmm. Or maybe we could even say it starts with Amuro helping everyone escape. Mm-hmm. But it's very short, and it leaves a lot of big questions hanging. When we watched the episode, we thought a bit about our friend Char, who came and spoke on the show to talk about Amuro, because like this is the point where we actually have to be most worried about Amuro. Right. This is the point when his life no longer has meaning. It no longer has structure or meaning or organization given to it by being an active duty soldier. Well, and what is he going to do? Is he going to... Does he go back to Earth? Does he? <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna call this this discussion to a close here because I think we should hold implications about the future for next week. Okay. <laughs> but there are a lot of questions about the implications of this ending. I suppose to wrap up, I would just say that I would expect a little bit more. If this was all about the survival of some individual people who never expected to be soldiers and get caught up in a war. To show us a little bit of what is their life post-war. Mm -hmm. They made it. Here's what that looks like. 
when instead it's they survived. <laughs> also, they were in many ways a crew of lonely, disconnected young people who now have connections and friendship and love mm -hmm. from working toward a common goal together. Yeah. Part of the reason I think that the show doesn't come down clearly on either Amaro's side or Char's is that I don't think you can look at the crew of the white base, our main characters, and not have to acknowledge that all of their lives are better now than they were in the first episode. Since the first episode opens with their home being destroyed, <laughs> yes, that's very hard to argue. Are their lives better than they would have been if there hadn't been a war? That's basically that's a good that's impossible to yeah, argue. It is. Amuro, at least, has had incredible growth as a person moving beyond the traumas of his absolutely terrible parents. And not for nothing, would his new type abilities have developed if he hadn't hopped into the Gundam? Yeah. We don't know. Yeah, that's the question Shar doesn't ask during that conversation, but it's definitely hanging in the air between them uncomfortable it's part of the reason gundam fans are so fond of debating whether or not it is actually an anti-war <laughs> show gundam is a show very much about yes but is war horrible yes but can war elevate a person yes but it's worth remembering we're talking about a show that in a lot of ways is a clear parallel to world war ii and I don't know anybody, I don't know anybody I'd want to talk to who would argue now that we shouldn't have fought Hitler. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but so I think the side of the show might be more of a war is hell, a sometimes necessary hell, mm -hmm. but hell and should be avoided if at all possible. Yeah, but there's no there's no avoiding it, really. In, in the long term, across the grand scale of human existence, there's no avoiding war. That's an even deeper philosophical question. What happens between Amuro and Lala, who start out completely opposed and incapable of understanding each other, slowly but surely peel away the layers of what it is they're saying, right? Mm -hmm. Lala says, how can you fight when you don't have anything to defend? And he says, how can you only, how can you fight just because Char? <laughs> And while it's not part of the dialogue explicitly, what I understood their eventual closeness to mean is that they had peeled some of that back and he began to understand Shar is the only person she has in the whole world and has looked out for her and cared for her and so she would do anything for him. And she begins to understand Zion wants to subjugate all of humanity <laughs> and Amuro takes pride in piloting the Gundam well and... Amuro cares about his crew that he defends. And that if that sort of clear understanding were possible, then human beings would find other ways to resolve their conflicts rather than killing each other. Mm -hmm. That is perhaps a naive position. Mm -hmm. They are still very young. Uh, I fully believe that there are people who <laughs> <laughs> I, could, I could achieve perfect uh, understanding with and I would be like, wow, you're a monster. <laughs> okay. And you need to be stopped. I would understand why they thought the way they did, but it wouldn't necessarily lead me uh, to thinking they didn't need to be stopped. Separate topic, mm -hmm. much less philosophical. We, we went off the deep end there for a bit. <laughs> Just do like you, Gundam. Do you think the loss of episodes hurt the show? No. Me neither. 
Tom and I have gone through all of the episodes of the show and tried to evaluate which we think are skippable and which we think are must-watches. These are (laughs) available as bonus episodes for our patrons if you really want to hear the episode-by-episode breakdown. But what it came down to is we thought about a third of the show was skippable. And Not not, not that you should skip it, but... If you're trying to get the minimum acceptable Gundam experience... And understand the story. You can skip about a third of the episodes. And so the question is, if there was already that much sort of slack in the story, and I say slack just in pure narrative terms, there was lots of good character development and things like that in those episodes, but what would they have done with the extra nine episodes? How much of that would have been fluff? (laughs) How much of that would have been kukuru's (laughs) doan? Yeah, or just repeating things that other episodes managed to accomplish. Or drawing things out, but without necessarily fleshing them out anymore. Or interminable philosophical discussions about what it means to be a new type and how exactly the powers work. And I don't, other than a couple of those character development things I mentioned, feel shortchanged in any way by the story. It felt complete. So. Mm -hmm. We might have gotten some additional mobile suits. Oh, no. (laughs) But we ended up getting those anyway, so whatever. We've been asked what our favorite characters are, which for me is a nearly impossible question because there are a whole bunch of people who I like for a variety of different reasons. We also broke it down further by uh, characters that we like personally in the sort of I would want to be friends with this person Mm -hmm. way versus characters who we think are incredible as characters in a story. You start. Maybe it'll inspire me. (laughs) Okay. So I have to say first that my experience of watching this with you, watching it the way that we did to make this podcast, and just as a quick peek behind the curtain, we ended up watching each episode between three and four times. So we watched these pretty closely, we discussed them extensively, and often I came away with a different understanding of a certain character than I had gone into the rewatch with. And so after all of that, it's easier for me to say which of the characters I think is the best executed as a character. And that's Char. I don't like Char. I think Char is a monster. I wouldn't want to spend a minute with him. But of all the characters, Char is the one who most perfectly plays his role in the story as an antagonist, as someone who is driving the plot forward, but also remaining mysterious without being incomprehensible. You get these flashes of understanding of who Char is, and they're simultaneously seductive and repulsive. I was going to say, the appeal of Char is that he's complex. He's not Girin, who's obviously evil. With Char, we have these moments of, oh, but your childhood and your family got killed, and oh, maybe you cared about Garma, but you also killed Garma, and you cared about Lala, but you also manipulated the hell out of her and sent her to her death, effectively. And because Char lies constantly to everyone, you never know what is mask and what is person. If there's any person there, if it's not just a matryoshka doll of masks. Except for the part where he takes off the mask and shoots Kaisili in the head. That felt pure Kasmal. <laughs> I think I would agree with that, that he is the best executed character in the whole thing. If you had to pick a second, since I already said Char. As much as he frustrated me and as much as I don't particularly like him, I think maybe Amuro. Hmm. I was very impressed with how they handled his development through the series, with how they handled his growing up, his coming to terms with his father, his the handling of his relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think what 
What holds Amuro back as a character is that he's at his most interesting when he is a mess. And for the story to work, he has to grow out of being such a mess. And so he becomes a little bit less interesting in the latter part of the show. True. There's only so much they can do with those little flashes of, like, Amuro, you shouldn't let your relationship with Fra flounder. Like, old friends are hard to come by. <laughs> Amuro's little flash of jealousy about Fra and Hayato, but he reins it in. Mm -hmm. There's only so much you can do with that. Uh, Well-adjusted people are often not very interesting. Though with Amuro, you appreciate them all the more because you've seen where he was, like, a month ago. In terms of people I would actually want to spend time with, obviously Kai. I've loved Kai since the beginning. Shout out, Kai. <laughs> I believe one of my first I'm Nina's was that I'm a Kai apologist. Indeed it was. We don't get very much Kai in those later episodes, but I have a, I just have a soft spot for bitter people. <laughs> <laughs> I have to agree with you here. Also, Kai is the character that I like the most as a person. And furthermore, Kai is the character that I think... If I were in the world of Gundam, if I were on the white base, Kai is the one I would hope to be like. Because Amuro is like, Amuro is like the special boy. Amuro is superhuman. Mm -hmm. Amuro is like impossible. Mm -hmm. But Kai feels relatable to me personally. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, you're not all that sarcastic or bitter, though. I know, but I don't want to be Hayato. <laughs> don't make me Hayato, Nina. I hate to put it to you like this, Tom, but you might be Sela. I can live with that. KG thinks everybody hates them all the time. <laughs> I could be Sayla. Good, yeah. good at your work. Yeah, like. okay. <laughs> Not like the best, but pretty good at it. But also very like KG about their feelings. <laughs> I am Sayla. <laughs> now you get to be bleeped. That never happens. <laughs> I tricked you into cursing. <laughs> and if I had to pick a second... Like, person I would actually want to spend time with, it would be Kika Cats and Let's. Nice. But that's mostly because, as children, they don't have the baggage everyone else has. They're very straightforward. Their emotions are largely uncomplicated. They're fun and cheeky and always want to just help people. <laughs> and it's great. You know, you're probably the most like Kai. Yeah, probably. No wonder I like him so much. All right. Well, we both agreed on Kai. If you had to pick a second person, who would you pick? Huh. Hmm. This one's tricky. You can also pick the kids if you want. <laughs> it's also fair to point out I've just always liked kids my whole life. I've liked little kids. I liked babysitting. I like playing with my little cousins. Like, I enjoy pretending to be a child for a little while. I was going to say Sayla, but now I don't know how much of that is just... Because she's like you? Yeah, <laughs> that I see myself in her. You could say Sayla. All right, I'm going to say Sayla because I see myself in her. You didn't until I pointed it out, though. Yes, I know. You're very perceptive, <laughs> wise, and clever. <laughs> just like Kai. <laughs> what a creepy laugh. I have one more question for you. Okay. Going into this, I assume you knew like something about Gundam because it's Gundam, right? You had some idea of it from the, the culture, the ether, being an anime fan, knowing a lot about Japan. Sure. Was there anything that really surprised you? I guess the level of sort of new agey mysticism about new types. I knew there was some kind of psychic-ish ability. I expected it to feel more pseudoscience-y. And less woo-woo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
that was a bit of a surprise. I was totally surprised in the best possible way by the very uh, kind of avant-garde animation that we get tied into a bunch of the new type scenes. I thought that was awesome and was completely unexpected. I was not expecting daring animation choices <laughs> from this kind of show. Cool. Yakeato literally means after the burning, and is sometimes translated as yakeato sedai, or generation of the ashes. It's a term used to describe the generation of Japanese who experienced the devastation of the final days of the Pacific War during their early, formative adolescence. For many members of this group, the trauma they experienced drove them to express those experiences through art. One book I read about them describes their influence as the influence of a generation of disenfranchised children, which, if that doesn't just sound like Gundam, I don't know <laughs> what does. <laughs> the legacy of this generation is that even as they grow old, they carry this child self with them. Literary magazines for young people were starting to come out in the post-war period and did not shy away from talking about the war. Men who had been soldiers in the war were either busy reestablishing themselves or so scarred by their wartime experience, they didn't want to talk about it, particularly not to their own children. Without the Yakeato sharing their own experience and writing for the younger generation, there'd be something of a blind spot about the wartime experience in post-war Japan. They were also some of the first people to deal with Japan's role as aggressor and instigator, not simply victim, and contending with the position of Japanese civilians in a situation brought on by oligarchs in the imperial system, one which they really couldn't control, but one which ultimately they were complicit in and really wrestling with the idea of how much responsibility do individual civilians bear for what happened. Many are individualists, iconoclasts, activists. They are pretty universally pacifists. I didn't read about any who weren't. There <laughs> might be some, I don't know. <laughs> uh, as well as advocating for other kinds of social reform, democracy, other political reform, social and philosophical issues, nuclear weapons, uh, social nonconformism. They want to make sure that Japan doesn't forget the horror of war, and in more recent years, the remaining Yakiato have commented on the recent resurgence of right-wing and militant nationalism in Japan, and of groups seeking to rewrite memory of the war to remove Japanese atrocities and responsibility. This sounds a lot like Tomino. Yeah, I would say they are generally slightly older than Tomino. Yeah, he's a couple of years too young, but only one or two years too young to be part of this group. Yeah, they were mostly born in the 30s. He was born in 41. But in many ways, they would be his contemporaries. Their works were coming out and being discussed in the 60s, so shortly before Gundam, and they had widespread cultural influence. I'm going to discuss three specific Yakeato authors in particular, some of the most famous, to delve deeper into the sort of issues that they address with their art and how some of that could very obviously have influenced Gundam. Or you could even look at Gundam as a product of Yakeato art making. I don't know if anyone's ever done that. <laughs> so first, Akiyuki Nosaka. He was born in 1930 and was an author, singer, lyricist, and politician. His adoptive father died in the bombing of Kobe. One sister died of illness during the war and another of malnutrition. He's well known for children's stories about the war, including Grave of the Fireflies, which was released in 1967, and this is the story on which the film is based. 
For anyone unfamiliar, this is the story of two young war orphans uh, and their attempts to survive in immediate post-war Japan. And the it's an older brother and a younger sister, and the younger sister starves to death during the course of the film. Spoiler, sorry. <laughs> uh, the Grave of the Fireflies Wikipedia page draws heavily from an interview with Nosaka, which was published in Anime... Animeju? Animeju. Animeju. <laughs> but it's a Japanese anime and entertainment magazine uh, that interviewed him in 1987. An English version of the interview was published in Animerica, which is Viz Media's monthly magazine, <laughs> in 1991, but I was not able to get my hands on the interview itself. Nosaka describes it as a double suicide story. Through the course of the story, at one point, the children are sent to live with an aunt who while she takes them in is very cruel and they wind up choosing to leave rather than subject themselves to living with her which could be seen as suicidal uh nosaka describes the story as both tragic and beautiful that they almost they're taking on the whole world the whole world is their enemy and this young boy is taking on such a heavy responsibility in trying to care for his sister but that when it's the two of them alone, they can try to create a sort of idealized world. He describes his main character as not a typical wartime child. Uh, you know, survival instinct would say, put up with your horrible aunt because it's better than starving, that you should just endure. And his feeling was that most children in wartime would have just endured. But his main character prioritizes emotions and flees, which he thought would be more relatable to young people at the time of the story. Hmm. And sounds Amuro-esque to me, <laughs> through prioritizing his feelings over necessarily a survival instinct sometimes. An obituary for Nosaka points out that in the immediate aftermath of the war, no one needed reminding <laughs> of their trauma, right? Then the country rebuilt and focused on moving forward, and there was a sense of suppressing those feelings and memories. That it wasn't until the Vietnam War, when the country's news agencies started to feel comfortable reporting on atrocities abroad that members of that generation started to contend with their own memories of the wartime and the post-war period. And Nosaka in particular saw writing as a way of reclaiming his suppressed memories about that time. Mm. Next, we have Kenzaburo Oe. He was born in 1935 as a writer and a Nobel laureate in literature. Mm, impressive. His father died in the war. Yeah, he won the Nobel Prize very late. I want to say he won it in the 90s. <laughs> His father died in the war. His strongest wartime memories were of the indoctrination they received at school. Teachers would ask them what they would do if the emperor commanded them to die, and they were expected to express a willingness to kill themselves for the emperor. Uh, in his heart, he felt very reluctant about this and didn't really understand it and then felt ashamed of his reluctance. They're like, oh, everyone is supposed to feel this way about the emperor and I don't, and that must mean there's something wrong with me. And then once the occupation began, these same teachers, who had also described Americans as devils, are the ones teaching the kids to be friendly to the occupying forces and greet them in English and so on. And he was left feeling deeply betrayed and deceived. He describes himself as writing about the dignity of all humans. He wrote several stories about Yamaguchi Otoya, who uh, assassinated the chairman of Japan's Socialist Party in 1960. Oh, I remember reading about that. And then killed himself in prison three weeks later. This led to him receiving death threats from across the political spectrum. Right-wing extremists felt that it denigrated the legacy of the imperial government, and left-wing intellectuals and artists felt like it was championing a terrorist. For what it's worth, that 
right-wing assassin remains like the patron saint of the far right Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. But I just, I find it interesting that both sides were offended. I would read it and tell you my opinions, but the magazine that published the stories printed an apology to any readers that were offended. Oh, I would not apologize. Uh, And the stories have never been translated or reprinted. He also wrote about how the Japanese military had coerced Okinawan civilians into committing suicide. Much, much later, the far right in Japan wanted to make an example of somebody, and so two retired officers sued him for libel. But the case was ultimately thrown out uh, because there is ample evidence that the army was involved in the mass suicides in Okinawa. (laughs) His writing has also been heavily influenced by his son Hikari. Hikari was born with a cranial abnormality and needed surgery right after he was born. Doctors told his parents that he would be severely mentally disabled and actually told his parents to forego the surgery and let their son die. (sighs) That's horrible. As an article in the Paris Review put it, Owen knew that his child would be ostracized. At the time, it was considered shameful to even take a handicapped child out in public, but he and his wife were adamant that they wanted him to have the surgery and they embraced their new life. Hikari seemed not to understand when his family tried to communicate with him and didn't speak until he was six. But when he did speak, it was while the family was on vacation together and out walking, and he said, that's a water rail, which is a type of bird. He was identifying a bird call. Ever since he had been a baby, his family had played classical music and this recording that they had of bird calls and the bird identities. For him, because he seemed to respond really well to music and to interesting sounds. And so his <laughs> first words were recounting, oh, that's such and such bird. Soon, they enrolled him in piano lessons, and he turned out to be a musical savant. He can recognize and recall any piece of music he has ever heard and transcribe it from memory. And he is now a famous composer in Japan. I listened to some of his music. It's very beautiful. Uh, His own Wikipedia page describes him as autistic, visually impaired, developmentally delayed, epileptic, and with limited physical coordination. He doesn't speak much, but clearly he has this rich artistic life and an artistic career, and he lives with his parents, often listening and composing in the same room where his father writes. Several of Oe's novels inspired by Hikari are semi-autobiographical, including, I don't remember if it was one or a series, but dealing with a father's pain at not being able to communicate with a mentally disabled son, and a feeling of disconnection from his own father who died in the war, and so whose stories he will never be able to hear, and who he will never be able to have those conversations with. Mm. Uh, He has also been an advocate for Hibakusha. Uh, Hibakusha is the name in Japan for survivors of the atomic bombings. And I feel like this is often surprising to Americans who learn about this, but who tend to feel a huge amount of survivor guilt and personal shame that they survived while so many people died. And there is some prejudice in society for them. You know, they are a reminder of a terrible time. And so he has been an advocate for them. He was awarded Japan's Order of Culture, but refused to receive it because it is presented by the emperor. He said, quote, I do not recognize any authority, any value higher than democracy. Once That's again, hardcore. Once again, received many death threats. <laughs> Full respect. Uh, he seemed just like a very interesting character, and I would love to read more about him sometime. Finally, we have Makoto Oda. He was born in 1932, a novelist, a peace activist, and a Time Asian hero, because apparently that's an award that Time gives. <laughs> he first became famous for his 1961 novel, Nandemo Mite Yaro. 
uh, which is translated usually as, I'll go and see everything, or I want to see everything, which recounts his travels through Europe and Asia on a budget of $1 per day. Despite sounding like a travel guide, a fellow author and contemporary of his, Fumiko Kometani, described it as having similar influence in Japan to Kerouac's On the Road in the United States. Mm. Uh, he had lived a fairly sheltered life in Japan in a well-off family and was shocked by the poverty he saw as he traveled. Um, after paying for airfare, he frequently had little to no money left. And in Kolkata, he slept on the street uh, with you know, untouchables and other impoverished people. As Kometani puts it, Oda decided that he had been sort of cowardly and lax, that there was a sense in Japan of identification with and fascination with the West, uh, what one book I read described as Occidentalism, <laughs> uh, to the neglect of Asia and its problems. Oda emphasizes in his book that the Japanese people are Asians, and that all Asians were equal when it came down to the nitty-gritty of the daily battle for life's existence. This egalitarian idea was something of a shock to a nation used to thinking of itself as sort of the middle of a pecking order where the West is at the top and then Japan and then everybody else. His 1981 book Hiroshima deals not just with the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but also on the atomic bomb's effect on the uh, Hopi Native American tribe who lived near the testing site. Mm. He wrote numerous other books dealing with World War II and the Korean War. He founded Beheiren, or the Citizens League for Peace in Vietnam, in 1965, and was an inaugural member of the Article 9 Association, which was founded to protect Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution, the one that renounces their right to wage war. His wife is a Japanese-born North Korean artist, Hyun Sun-hee, uh, who was not an could never be a Japanese citizen, and so he devoted himself to advocacy for ethnic Koreans in Japan and fighting the discrimination they face. I think it's very easy to see how this artistic movement could have had a lot of influence on Tomino and the rest of the writers. Mm -hmm. Especially in these earliest projects. I mean, I suppose the influence of that movement would have waned a little bit by the late 1970s, but for artists and writers who came of age when the Yakeato movement was really at its most powerful, to then see the growing nationalism, the growing militarism of the 70s, and to be very distressed by that, you can see Gundam as a kind of revival of the Yakeato movement. I would say more a, a continuation and a piece of it, because I don't think the movement was really waning in the 70s. I sort of get the impression the movement is only really waning now as its members are dying. Mm. You know, they're they're old men now, and uh, there aren't very many of them left. It was a time when their influence over the culture was waning. Yes. And the, <laughs> the memory of the war was fading in a lot of ways. I will be interested to see if I get a sense of an expansion beyond a straight-up anti-war sense <laughs> because one thing that seems common to all the yakato i looked at is that they're activists in a very broad sense they care about a lot of issues <laughs> mm -hmm. and gundam does feel much more focused although we have seen occasionally hints of other things coming up Much in the same way that we wanted to look at the narrative as a whole once we got to the end of the series, 
At this point, we wanted to look a bit at the combat in a series as a whole. But when we sat down to start thinking about even just the duels, it was too much. <laughs> it was too much to talk about as a research piece of a single episode. So we've narrowed it down further. We are going to look specifically at fights between Amuro and Shar from after they become clear rivals. So not the first couple of fights, because in those first couple of fights... They haven't developed that mutual obsession <laughs> yet. So we've picked five fights that we want to analyze, and we have invited our friend and our edged weapons consultant, Sean Michael Chin. I appreciate edged weapons consultant. I'll take it. Sean is a fight director, fight choreographer, actor, and stunt person. So he is an expert on this sort of thing. Thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure. Loyal listeners will know that Sean joined us previously for episode 1.30 the assassination of Makaveh by the Esper Amuro Ray, in which we covered Duel in Texas. And Sean joined us to discuss the Duel in Texas. It's a great episode. I recommend you go back and listen to it. I'm quite good at it. <laughs> the five fights that we chose for this analysis are episode 10, Garma's Fate, where Amuro and Shar fight in the ruins of bombed out Seattle. Episode 28, Tragedy in Jabro, the first of the two Jabro episodes in which Shar and a small commando team break into Jabro, and Lieutenant Woody joins the fight briefly. We then skip ahead to episode 38, Shar and Sela, the second fight in the Texas colony. This is the first Gundam versus Gelgoog fight. Then we'll jump to Cosmic Glow, which is the fight between Shar, Amuro, Lala, and Sela. And then we'll jump to the final duel, which bridges both episodes 42 and 43, Space Fortress Abawaku and Escape. And we've defined this fight as beginning when the Gundam and the Zeong are fighting in space, right before they blow each other to bits. <laughs> Um, and then continuing through the mobile suit fight in Abawaku, then into the actual sword duel in Abawaku. So one thing I noticed about all of these fights is each one drastically changes the terms of the encounter. In the first fight, it's Gundam versus Zaku in an urban environment. Mm. Then we get Gundam versus Zagok, which is the fast commando aquatic suit in a subterranean environment, which is the last thing you would expect in a science fiction space show. Then you get... Um, Actually, the real last thing you would expect in a science fiction show, because the next <laughs> fight is Gundam versus Gelgoog in Texas. <laughs> it's very true. Then you get the one fight that we've chosen, although there are many fights like this in the show where they're in space, but this one adds several additional combatants. And then the final fight is Gundam Zeong in Abawaku. So you have chosen a number of fights for me to look at in which the environment plays a very important factor. It doesn't always play a huge factor in the actual, in the outcome. A lot of the time the environment for these battles sets the mood or sets up a, a lovely kind of framing narrative. Mm. The only one that really stands out to me in which the environment really functions critically is the one on Texas. I actually feel like the Texas battle is quite similar to the Garma's Fate battle in that there's a lot of cover that they're utilizing. The difference, of course, being in Texas, you have the sandstorm going on at the same time. So you have that low visibility 
Right, right. Um, the use of cover in uh, episode 10, um, when it's in the, the urban landscape, which is a, a really fun thing to see, these giant mech suits behaving like we would expect normal-sized soldiers to behave, hiding mm-hmm. behind pieces of rubble, uh, peeking out from behind cover. Chest-high walls. Chest-high walls everywhere. <laughs> no dive rolls, though. I was very disappointed by the lack of dive rolls. I, they did. It's true. They did find the two things in the world that can serve as cover for a 20 meter tall robot (laughs) downed buildings and rock formations for me the big difference in in those two for the use of cover was that it was very exciting visually in the episode about garma but it didn't necessarily function as narratively uh, because most of the time when the Gundam is using cover or the Xeon forces are using cover, Amuro is noticing where Shar is. They're not playing cat and mouse in that way. So it gives a little credence to Shar's notice that uh, he's getting better because Amuro is able to pay attention to what he perceives as a greater threat uh, in the appearance of Shar while still uh, you know, maintaining you know, battlefield discipline, hiding behind cover when he needs to. He's outnumbered, but not outmatched. Whereas in Texas, Shar is using the sandstorm and firing at the rock formations to disorient and effectively blind the Gundam while he's figuring out what the Gundam's capabilities are at this point. I would then contrast both of those episodes where Shar uses the terrain in order to give himself an information advantage. He knows where the Gundam is. The Gundam doesn't know where he is. And even in episode 10, when Amuro is more aware of where Shar is, Shar is totally aware of where the Gundam is at all times. Absolutely. You know, that really defines those couple of combats. Contrast that then to the final combat where Shar spends a lot of the combat wondering where the Gundam is, trying to find it and not being able to. Amuro's first response once he realizes that it might be Shar on the battlefield uh, in Seattle is, I can't let him hit me. He's he's not hiding per se. He is using the cover tactically. He's dealing with these lesser enemies he can handle, uh, but he's keenly aware that he is still outmatched. He is in a, a geographically dense environment, worried about being hit. And then at the end of the series, they are in free space and the Gundam is all over the place. He's no longer worried about that. Their skills have become so much more even and they know the conflict is not going to be decided by one strike or one blow or one pass. Uh, it's going to be at the end of the day about you know, uh, whose new type abilities are uh, better understood. And the battle in Texas really creates the bridge between those two extremes, because in that one, although Shar has the information advantage, he has the element of surprise, Amuro's new type abilities help him to bridge the gap. Shar's in hiding, but Amuro is able to dodge just in the nick of time. And it really does seem like in that fight, it is down to one lucky hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that really struck me in this fight... When you say this, you mean Texas? Yes, sorry, thank you. Is that Amuro gives what I think might be one of the first indications that he is surpassing the Gundam. 
there's so much with, you know, Amaro's self-identity being connected with the Gundam. And yet in this one, when he is trying to uh, bridge the distance with Shar, he he starts telling the Gundam, like, well, respond faster. I need you to respond faster because he is at the point now where he knows what he can do. He, he has an he has a idea of what he uh, can achieve and is now starting to brush up against the limitations imposed by the physical world, by the mechanisms under his control. Yeah, Char, on the other hand, uh, just constantly gets uh, mobile suit upgrades. This may have also come up in Tragedy in Jaburo, but less extreme than in Char and Sela. It's one of the first moments, I think, where it occurs to Char that Amuro is a real threat. I think he can tell that Amuro has a lot of ability, but I will... <laughs> At that point where Amuro basically flips the Gundam over Shar and manages to land a hit on the Gelgoog's hand. And Shar says, Shimata! Which is an expression that gets used when something has regrettably happened. (laughs) And it gives you a feeling that Shar has made a mistake and he knows he has made a mistake. Which I don't think ever happens <laughs> at any other point in the series. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does make me wonder why Amuro, you know, Shield Chan, we, we lose Shield Chan all the time. Thank heavens for the gyms so that they have all those shields lying around. <laughs> but in both uh, the fight with McVeigh and then the, and then the fight with Shar following, uh, Amuro turns the fight around when he draws his second beam saber. He has two. Why is he not using them both? Because he uses the second one for deceptions. <sighs> So would you say that was a a weakness to you or a thing that bothered you about these combats, that he has that second blade the whole time and he doesn't use it? It's less that it bothers me that it's not being used and more that it is rarely acknowledged. It'd be one thing if the Gundam was uh, regularly disarmed and had to draw it a second time. If in a prolonged combat, one of the beam sabers ran out of power and you had to draw the second one. But in both of those fights, McVeigh and Shar on Texas, uh, Amuro wins, effectively wins both of them by drawing the second beam saber. And for a character who is learning and growing with each fight, uh, that's that's too proof positive back to back. It's like, why? Like, uh, you know, this shield is really lovely when I'm hiding behind it, shooting my gun. Once that shield is down, drop both those babies and go to town. I was just realizing, I feel like we skipped over Jaburo, <laughs> sort of. We jumped ahead. The best thing that happens in Jaburo is Amuro shooting through his own shield. It is such a cool shot. Yeah. I think the best thing that happens in Jaburo is when Shar re-enters the fray, he destroys the gym, and then he has this moment where he stands up. The Well, he doesn't stand up. The Zagak stands up. But you see this expression on Shar's face. And Shar has a very blunted affect. This is about as expressive as Shar is going to get until Lala dies. And it's this crooked smile, the head cocked. It's very self-satisfied. Yeah. But it's this is the first time that he's been in combat in a long time. It's the first time he's faced the Gundam in a long time. And you know, this is like, this completes him. So was there anything that you actively disliked about Tragedy in Jaburo or that you thought was badly done or a poor artistic choice? I think it could have benefited from a a little bit of elongated pacing at the back end. Uh, when I was watching it the first time, I asked Tom and Nina to pause it and to rewind because I was unclear on my first viewing 
how the Zagox uh, camera got damaged. So we had to go back and take a look at that. I, I just missed it the first time we were going. It I, does happen very quickly. We actually missed it the first time we watched it for the podcast. And on rewatching it several times, we noticed that it's actually Lieutenant Woody right before he dies, shooting out the Zagox camera. So credit to Woody. I've got some notes here about that. And then Lieutenant Woody's intervention is what uh, gives Amuro pause because he, he doesn't want Woody to put himself in danger. Uh, and that's ironically uh, what actually allows Char to disengage because if that had been a full you know pincer strike uh, from Lieutenant Woody and I think Amuro could have ended it right there. I do think pacing wise... I missed it. You missed it. I can't imagine how many of the viewers missed it when it was on air just that one time. And then without knowing that the camera was damaged, and I didn't get a strong understanding on the first viewing of why Shar was retreating. So I think that pacing wise, I wanted a little bit more of that recognition of here is a technological reason why I am leaving this combat this 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 place that i've been waiting to return to fighting this person that i'm i'm desperate to defeat i also have a complaint about that one to answer nina's question in that combat the zagox physical appearance looks scary and savage in a melee kind of way it's got claw hands and it's like it looks like a muscular mobile suit and yet it does basically no melee practically never uses those claws in the fight there's one scene where it grabs the gundam but it doesn't actually do any damage yeah i i know exactly what you're talking about because it it's trying to get in there and it grabs the gun to prevent um the gun from from firing at it i actually disagree with you a little bit because the Zagok is very clearly controlling the melee space. The Gundam throws a knee uh, that allows them to disengage, but otherwise the Zagok is all over the place. It jumps up, it grabs the ceiling with its claws. I thought that was a great moment. Plus, if the Zagok were successful, uh, and choreographically this is always an issue to run into, it's like you get a great idea or you overfocus on the realistic capability of your tool or your character. Oftentimes, you can choreograph yourself into a hole where there's no way out. And especially if you have accidentally put yourself in a hole where the wrong person is winning, uh, <laughs> got to backtrack. I do love that the failure of the Zagok in melee is what sets up the shield shot uh, and shooting the shield is visually very important for the Amaro Shar relationship because the previous engagement in the battle in Seattle the primary information that we're given about those two characters is verbal Shar saying he's gotten better Amaro saying I can't let him hit me when we get to Jaburo, that image is so striking. And what we get is we see Char's expertise uh, being able to be leaving an engagement and yet still get off a very, very well-timed, well-aimed shot um, that catches the Gundam by surprise, or so he thinks. We get in this moment to see Amaro's growth. He responds to something that's happening and, uh, and, and comes up with a plan of action that is very unique. And again, it looks cool. I can't stress enough how cool of a shot it is. It's great. And we know Shield-chan is disposable as much as we love it. And so shooting through it, it's not like he's wrecking something that cannot be replaced. I give myself for you. <laughs> Shield-chan, no, have some self-respect. A few episodes before Jaburo, there's a line where the Federation High Command is discussing their treatment of the White Base. 
and how they've been using the white base basically as guinea pigs for all this new technology. And one of the things they say is, civilians come up with such creative new ideas. Or, or maybe it's amateurs. Amateurs come up with such creative ideas. Yeah, but from the top brass, don't they mean the same thing? <laughs> I think we can look at the first three parts. The Garmus Fate fight in Seattle, the Tragedy and Jabro fight, and the Shar and Sela fight as one section. And then by the time we get to Cosmic Glow and Space Fortress of Awaku and Escape, those feel very separate. Before we move into that second half, any other highs and lows from the first couple episodes? Do either of you have any other notes about things you loved, things you hated, <laughs> things that were interesting? I think that the inclusion of aerial space in Texas is a highlight. The leap over, I don't love the actual physical shape that the Gundam makes. I think it looks kind of silly. <laughs> um, I appreciate the zoom in on the strike on the wrist. Uh, from both a kind of classical Japanese swordplay perspective. Kote! <laughs> uh, and also, as as I have stated before, uh, my deep love is Star Wars, so any attack to the hand is going to just, it just makes my heart sing. I want to call back to something you said earlier, which was about how in Shard and Sela, we get one of those early signs of the Gundam not being able to keep up with Amuro. One of the persistent things about mecha shows is that they're really about bodies and our own relationships to our bodies. The external body, the active body is a big metal construct, but there's a reason it's shaped like a person. And the difference between Amuro and Char in how they treat bodies, their mobile suit bodies here is really quite striking. Amuro's is breaking down, not keeping up with him. His capabilities have exceeded his body's ability to actually execute them. As a person in my early 30s, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it's also worth just thinking of it as if any of you out there have ever tried to learn a new physical task, whether it was sport or dance or even something that involved manual dexterity working with your hands, you can understand exactly how it's supposed to work, but then actually getting your body to do it can be very difficult. And that feels like such a clear parallel. <laughs> On a personal note, it has taken Nina uh, s several tries over several years to teach me how to stitch. By sheer coincidence, all three of us have practiced martial arts for a long time. And I can say from personal experience, there have been many times when I've been in the middle of a sparring match and I have practically screamed at my body, move faster, I need you to move faster. You see openings and you're too tired, you're too slow, you can't react fast enough to exploit them. So this is a this is a familiar feeling that Amuro is having. But Char just discards his bodies and gets better ones. Transhumanism? No, no sentimentality about it at all. But yeah, transhumanism. Char is a new type supremacist. Char believes wholeheartedly in the transcendence of the human form. The post-human world. And he is going to bring it about by hook or by crook or by genocide. I mean, yeah, that's that's what I meant. <laughs> How does Char feel about cloning or complete cybernetic replacement? I can't answer that question while Nina's around. Dun, dun, dun! For the record, I had no idea that was actually a thing. I was just curious. <laughs> I don't think my answer confirmed that it was a thing. <laughs> All right, so into space we go. The first of these fights is, I think, the most complicated, the one in A Cosmic Glow, because it has four participants. 
We have Char, Amaro, Sela, and Lala. I didn't have a whole lot to say choreographically. This kind of falls under the auspices of pure fiction, uh, at least for how we can move now. We're in a zero-G space. We have humanoid forms moving uh, freely in all dimensions. So there's only so much that I can really comment on on a critical level other than like some things look cool and some things do not um the helicoptering of of the sword staff i think it looks cool it is also classic and done to death uh, but when you're looking at something that is 40 years old i think we can give it the benefit of the doubt and say like no that's cool i will die on this hill that's fine he's talking about char's weapon having replaced the gilgoog's physically bladed sword thing we talked about that how maybe how it's like maybe a sword and maybe a naginata and maybe something else uh <laughs> with one that has beam blades projections i don't even know what we should call them on both sides and i will point out that this preceded the star wars prequels by a very significant amount se- several decades what are you implying tom oh nothing i'm just you know there's you uh, if a, an energy weapon with energy blades at both ends that you spin around. With a character who is, is known for the color red and maybe has some extra physical powers. Loud tea sipping. <laughs> we know Tomino was inspired by George Lucas and by Star Wars, so turnabout's fair play, y'all. <laughs> I did have one other visual from Cosmic Glow that I I absolutely adored. And it's when the Gundam starts to really find its rhythm. There's this great shot where it just like turns on a dime and fires behind itself over the left hip. And in that moment, it, it stows the shield. Our next shot of the Gundam has the shield across the back in this very um, fun armored position. The chaotic battlefield, I'm going to place this this protective barrier behind me, and that's great. And that looks cool. But then we get another shot uh, where you see the Gundam from the front firing again, and this time the shield is slung across the back at like a 45 degree angle. And it's all happening fairly quick. And it just gives this sense of the shield almost being like strong on a strap and really has this kind of living quality to it. It's not like it doesn't magnetically attach itself to the exterior (laughs) of the Gundam. It's just, it's this very kinetic action. I really loved it. I thought it looked great. Yeah. Yasuhiko, who was the character designer, one of the major animators uh, for Gundam, by this point, he wasn't working on the series anymore. He had actually been overworked so badly, he ended up in the hospital and was not working on these episodes. But he has worked on a a couple of mecha shows over the years, and he was asked at one point about his principles for animating mecha. And his response was, there are none. You just draw them like people. Animate them like you would animate a person. Absolutely. So yeah, that, that organic feeling to the shield. I don't know if you noticed this, but the Gelgoog also has a shield, and the Gelgoog also has its shield slung on its back. I did see that. I also don't recall in any of the clips that we watched the shield coming off of the back. Char has no need for shield, Chan. Char just wants to be a Ninja Turtle. (laughs) Aside from the fact that a lot of his mobile suits are red, (laughs) I get the impression that because of that sort of callous feeling that Char seems to have in relation to his mobile suits, because they are disposable to him, many of them are not very customized to him. Other than them being red, (laughs) they're not built for him. And I think this is another example of that. There's a shield that he's not going to use. He doesn't need. Why is he carrying the weight around? Because it was part of the design for this MS. Mm. 
We don't see Gelgoogs fighting all that much. We do see a few of them in the Abawaku escape section. And we don't see them using the shield very much, although they do all have the shield. I think Xeon developed the Gelgoog based on early reports about the Gundam. And they basically said, whatever the Gundam's got, we're going to give the Gelgoog hmm. because the Gundam is so effective. Gundam has a shield, Chan. Gelgoog gets a shield, Chan. But we saw that Xeon developed the missile shield. Why, why are they not maps producing the missile shield? The missile shield is a registered trademark of Makave. <laughs> Makave Vazcorp. <laughs> when we first watched A Cosmic Glow, my feeling was very much that it was really a fight between Amuro and Lala, with Sela and Shar kind of intruding at various points. Um, Shar actually serves the same purpose in this combat as Sela does in the sword fight. <laughs> which is that he comes in and breaks up this moment of connection between Amuro and Lala. Similarly, and I'm jumping ahead a bit, we'll come back to the sword fight, but Amuro and Char are having that mind connection moment when Sela physically gets knocked into them and breaks them apart. The use of those characters in these fights allows the show to have Char and Amuro's philosophies run head to head and not reach a resolution. Oh, that's that's the core of, of all of these fights. Yeah, and, and each each combat is a continuation of the same debate. Uh, and, and that's ultimately, uh, and, and this is a, just a huge part of kind of mythic storytelling. The, the reason why Char loses is Char does not change. Amuro grows. Amuro is, is going through the process of refining what his ideals are, refining his point of view. Uh, and you know, all of the physicality is, is just a metaphor for, you know, for these points of view. And then Char, Char has the temerity to claim credit for Amuro's development. Oh, God. Oh, oh. Without me, you would be nothing. Just show yourself the door. If only you could see things my way. If only you would join me and we could rule the Earth sphere as Zion new type and, sh- and-, and other slightly younger new type. Now, let us get to the Zeong. It doesn't have legs and it's not red. The legs are just for show. For Sean's reference, because Sean has been listening to the podcast but not watching all of the show, there's a scene where Char goes to pick up the Zeong. He's been told it's only 80% ready. It's a brand new prototype. They're not sure how it's going to be. The engineer's like, it's 100%. How dare they? But nobody's tested it yet. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, Char looks at it and he's like, it doesn't have any legs. So you don't need legs for space combat. Legs are for show. (laughs) Although we have seen mobile suits kick each other. So, you know. Especially Char. Char kicks a lot. Char's legs are not just for show. The Xeong is a really goofy looking mobile suit. The last time we had you on, you looked at the design and the capabilities of the Gyan, McVeigh's custom personal mobile suit, and you were really able to break that down and examine just how everything about the Gyan reinforces everything we knew about McVeigh. And I'm really curious if you see anything in the Zeong that you think tells us something about Shar. No, I don't think I do. Um, not at first. I think part of this comes to uh, the notion that the Gyan for McVeigh um, was a crystallization. Uh, that's the only mobile suit that McVeigh pilots. Right? And it's the only mobile suit in the show that was created specifically for a specific person. Right. So, so there's a lovely um, tying in 
of storytelling and in world logic as well for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as as you were saying previously, uh, Char uh, just disposes of mobile suits. They, it doesn't have the same kind of um, connection or narrative iconography. And the Xeon was explicitly not made for him. Right. He even seems a little, you know, a little put off that they're giving him this one. <laughs> um, as you said, it doesn't have legs. I kind of like the the silhouette of the Xiong. Um, I don't particularly like how it felt like they kept deciding what it could do after they had animated a, a section <laughs> of things. There was one point when when we were watching and I just turned to Tom and Nina and was like, how many cannons does this thing have? It's like more cannons. It has 13 cannons. It has one cannon on each of its fingers. It has two cannons on its skirt, and it has a cannon in its mouth. See, the cannons on the fingers, I was anticipating it from the moment I saw the hands. Mm -hmm. It has those flat fingers, and they were dark in circles. I was like, I think something's going to come out of those hands. Plus, I grew up with Power Rangers, and I was immediately thinking about the Dragon Sword with those rockets fingers. (laughs) This is actually the second finger gun equipped mobile suit we've encountered in Gundam. The goof also has finger guns. So we have established precedent and it's a thing we can do. Um, And that is what makes the cannon in the face work because it gets to be a surprise. Mm. And that one is very nice because that mirrors the, I think the machine guns that the Gundam has, Mm -hmm. but then the ones in the skirt. (laughs) feel like there was just a a medium shot on the skirt and then light popped out of it. It's like you already (laughs) did the hidden cannons. I was mad. I didn't like it. And not for nothing, finger guns and mouth guns kind of make sense. They're like, if you get kind of woo about it and you think of like human energy and how we express that. Sure. Yeah. It's through our hands. It's through the fingers. It's through the mouth. That conceptually works with the mobile suit as body, as the new age psycho body with the new type stuff and the psychomu things. But then like shooting out of the hip bones... It would be a different thing if it was shooting from the groin. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, in, in terms of the torso, you do see a lot of energy projection in visual media from the chest, um, you know, from the heart or from the solar plexus, this kind of locus of energy. You could do a similar thing from the hara, from the kind of the area like right around where the, the belly button is. And the, the GOG mobile suit does have a beam cannon. Exactly. There. Yeah. Um, and I think... It would be a very interesting choice to have some sort of, maybe not a cannon, but you can have something from the pelvic region. It, it is a very uh, potent image, and there's a lot of immediate um, physiological intuition that goes with that. But that's one because of you know how different cultures and, and how different individuals feel about or experience their own bodies. That is an area that, if it's to be included, uh, needs to be done so very specifically and with a lot of care. And I don't think the hip cannons, the the skirt cannons on this young were uh, developed with any care at all. It's one thing to have it like be a a font of power. And it's another thing from like, as Tom said, your actual hip bones. Those are for moving. <laughs> I mean, I guess it doesn't have legs, so it doesn't need it, but still. Now I'm picturing the cockpit in the like lower abdomen instead of in the head and the lower abdomen shooting off after Amuro lands the hit on it. Now I'm thinking Beast Wars season three, Optimal Optimus. Wrong crowd. We have no oh, idea what you're talking about. Oh, I'm there's I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm gonna say I've got at least eight listeners who know what I'm talking about. I bet it's more. Um, okay, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> um, you know that spark chamber. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I do love the detachable hands. 
that was very fun. Um, we get into a situation where uh, Amaro is being attacked from all sides by one enemy. Mm-hmm. That's very fun. I think I think that is a a nice twist on Char uh, on his speed. Like in in like on Texas and in previous engagements, Char is physically moving around the battlefield. That's true. I hadn't thought of that. This is a because they're in space. Because there's nothing around them. There's no terrain, so to speak. This is the only way to have that same feeling of now Shaw's over here. Now he's over here. Yeah. Now he's behind a building. Now he's in Texas. Um, and so, yeah, it, it gives that same feeling of Amro being penned in and hounded, even when there's nowhere for Shaw to move. Yeah, yeah. Um, and having having the, the finger guns uh, be five individual beams, uh, you know, I, I can't really speak to them being like how powerful they are. And I don't think really think that matters as much, but for each attack, you have five different sources of light uh, and five different streaks of energy going across the screen. And visually, it really just shows the level of tension and the level of threat and, and how drastic everything has become in this point. Uh, and I think that was a great use of, of kind of a, a natural escalation. I wrote down fusillade. <laughs> Going on more about the fight in general um, for the Xiong uh, versus the Gundam here, it truly is uh, a battle of attrition. Nina described it as a slow disintegration of both mobile suits. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's equivalent. One... The Gundam loses an arm, the Xiong loses its arms. The Gundam loses its head, the Xiong loses everything except its head. Yeah. There's, between the two of them, they, ha- they might have one functioning mobile suit. Yeah. You know, the hands, arms, shield, the body. Uh, you know, at the end of it, it's, it's even uh, the cameras that are going out. Uh, it's a breaking down of uh, the physical, of the external, uh, as we were talking about the notion of the mobile suit being uh, a, a stand-in for the physical form. It goes back to the notion of these two ideologies ramming into each other to see which is going to be superior. So as we're talking about this, it is, of course, hitting me very strongly that if the mobile suits are actually their bodies, then Sharon Amaro fighting without their mobile suits is really like their mentalities, their spirits, their souls, if you want to call it that, fighting each other. And it's also the most honest and communicative we see them with each other because their physical bodies have been stripped away. I don't think it could be said better. Do you think it says something that before the complete eradication of the mobile suits, it's the head of the Xiong and the body of the Gundam that survive? Yeah. So in my training as a martial artist, there's a lot of attention given to the difference between um, perception and reality. I think that the narrowing of focus to the head uh, where Shar is and the body or Amaro is speaks a lot to one philosophy being an attempt to use the intellect to justify choices, justify a point of view, versus a philosophy that recognizes what is and accepts the reality without attempting to twist it or distort it or fit it into a framework that benefits you or to the detriment of someone else. What can I make this do versus what is? Char's philosophy is this very free-floating, cerebral, like, 
oh, yes, the war is horrible, but look at how it has helped people to develop and the supremacy of new types, the glory of the future, whereas Amaro's is very much like people are suffering. Yes, it's, it's much more about now and what is. And Amaro is, does not inherently disagree with the uh, existence of new types or any of that, but the notion that Shar is pursuing with new type superiority, that's being added on. That is Shar's belief. That is a point of view uh, that is outside uh, the realm of what is. That is the tragedy of Amaro and Lala, of their communion really coming down to what is, and from what is, what could be. Except that what could be ends up being nothing because of the intervention of Shar. <sighs> You had mentioned in in an episode prior uh, about the sword fight between Shar and Amaro, uh, and I I think, uh, dear listener, that we have already said things that are way more interesting and way more important about the sword fight uh, philosophically. But since I'm here, I'll talk a little bit about what we actually see represented on the screen. And except for the zero gravity and the jetpacks, this is your wheelhouse. What are you saying, Tom? I'm saying you don't know everything about my life. I'm saying that you like sword fighting. <laughs> So I, the jetpacks were a ton of fun. Uh, I really like the design of the jetpacks. Very 70s. I'd like to see more more jetpacks like that, please. For the sword play itself, the swords are drawn in a very minimal style. Uh, the minimalism here helps to bring the viewer into kind of a very quick and very um, ready understanding of what these implements are going to do. Uh, they are modeled more on fencing implements. A more historical representation would be probably like more like a Spanish cup hilt rapier, but you know that's neither here nor there. Effectively, we are knowing that these are going to be more pokey pokey, less slashy slashy. <laughs> there is a little there. They do some some cutting, some slashing, but I did notice, uh, particularly on the second viewing, that a lot of that was kind of uh, while the combatants were moving out of distance. It's kind of like a get out of the way, or oh maybe I'll get you with the with the tip here. Um, some lovely back and forth, um, some great uh, parry reposts. It means when you have defended yourself and then immediately uh, counterattack. One of the things that I thought was very interesting is because it's in a very, very low gravity environment, or you know, microgravity effectively, that actually, for me, brought in a little bit more justification for more cutting techniques, kind of these whole body rotations from the core rather than just the thrust, uh, because they're floating in midair. They have no footwork. <laughs> and your physiological alignment, your bone structure, and your footing is so important to thrusting. Mm. I mean, it's, it's very important for cutting as well. But when they teach a lunge in fencing, uh, you're leading with the sword. Now, a lot of people will like to like go into a lunge and then kind of jab the arm forward in kind of a punching action because it feels faster and it feels stronger. One of the reasons why you generally don't have that be your first choice is because you're moving all of your sensitive bits that might get poked closer to your opponent without your sword there. Mm. So you are exposed to counterattack. But also by having the arm fully extended, 
uh, and having those bones in alignment with the shoulder, you then are using your legs, which are much, much more powerful to propel yourself off the floor so that if and hopefully when your sword were to meet resistance, your entire body would be one penetrating needle mm. rather than just trying to use your arm. I see. So without being able to use their feet in zero gravity, it becomes a very fun choreographic exercise of using a weapon uh, in a perhaps suboptimal sense for what it's designed for, but using the biomechanics that you have available to you. Uh, and as a choreographer, I would probably include some aspect of this element uh, in a scene between two characters, regardless of if it was in zero G or if it was uh, in the future or the present or the past, but just the notion of these characters have they have gone through everything they can do to affect the other person. They have they have done their best to impose their will, to to impose their point of view. You stop worrying about what is the most efficient or most effective, and you and it, you start just doing whatever you have available to you. Uh, so I thought that was very fun uh, with the swords in that moment, and and beautifully animated, beautifully animated. Yeah, one gets the impression watching it that whoever was animating it knew how fencing worked. Absolutely, intimately. Absolutely. Absolutely. The flexing of the blades um, as they were moving through space, particularly the the bend in Char's blade after he has stabbed Amaro was that was that was a cherry on top. Physi physics says yes. Physics <laughs> says yes. Their conversation in the early part of that scene makes it sound as if uh, Char chose swords. <laughs> because he thought he would be at an advantage against Amaro. Is there anything about how they perform in this fight that makes Char look like an experienced swordsman? I think it, it works in the way that Char has, um, at least in the beginning of the series, uh, was, was very successful in that he is really controlling. Um, he, he doesn't quite have the ability to control the distance, as well, since they are uh, floating through space with jetpacks, uh, but he does uh, control where they are. He he is the one who's moving about the space. There is there is one shot um, where uh, I guess when they were doing the initial animation, they didn't quite know how long the line was going to be because he's like he's ascending, and then the the background behind him uh, loops three times, uh, which is very easy to tell because one of the because in that background there's a portrait. So he, so he flies upwards past the same portrait three times while he's speaking. <laughs> <laughs> a little little continuity uh, uh, fun bit there. It's like, how tall is this room? I know it's big, but holy crap. This one person was very important. They needed their portrait in there multiple times. Uh, or just, you know, maybe like genetics. like. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk for a second about the room because this is not a room that we have encountered before. This is a room that from a metatextual standpoint exists exclusively for this fight to happen in it. Mm, yeah. Like the room where Dozel Zabi's family was kept on Solomon, this is a, now it's a bit wrecked, but at some point this was a like lavish, ornate living quarters in the middle of this space fortress. And this ruined domestic scene is the setting for the final confrontation of the series between Shar and Amaro. It does make it very human. It's two people in a room. Um, I think having it be in a recognizable space kind of takes us in the opposite direction of when we have the philosophical battles between 
Amaro and Lala, which goes into the the complete visual metaphor. It's also with Amaro and Lala, it's very chthonic. It's very uh, nature-oriented, yes. earth-oriented, water, lightning, insemination. Those are the images that we get. There's even like land and trees at one point. Here, it's more human-oriented. It's about families, and it, specifically, it's about broken families. Yeah, absolutely. When we see the portraits on the wall, we don't even we don't need to see who they are to understand what that brings to this context. It's it's also ha- it means they're surrounded by uh, not just relics of human civilization, but literally the faces of those who have come before. Um, on a sidebar, uh, it is a a very uh, fitting setting for the kind of swordplay that they are engaging in. Um, later kinds of sword fighting uh, uh, particularly once basically once everyone starts using guns for most obvious military reasons and and uh, sword play becomes a uh, truly the exercise of the gentility um, you start having the inclusion of rooms in in large estates and, and large houses uh, that would be the the salon and the salon can have many many different functions um, if you had completely excessive wealth you might have multiple salons for different reasons but if you had only moderate amounts of insane wealth <laughs> and could only afford one salon then that would be the room where uh, your fencing master uh, taught the blade it would probably it would also be the place where you learned how to fire a pistol and it would be the place where you learned dance and music. Hmm, that would explain why the swords are there. Absolutely. Any last thoughts on this sword fight before we talk about the combat in the series as a whole? There was a moment when uh, we stopped and really zoomed in and replayed the final moment slow motion. And I would just I would just love to shout out the level of detail in animation with Amaro's uh, thrust to the face. When we looked at it frame by frame, uh, that sword point goes right through the faceplate, and you can see the flexion point of the tip of Amaro's sword when it hits Shar's mask and then snaps off, and the tip continues to go flying through the mask frame by frame and they keep the continuity with uh amaro's sword being blunted and a little shorter it was just a masterful execution really a lot of love was put into that moment and it shows so my biggest questions were not necessarily about individual fights but now having watched more of the show altogether, do you notice any particular trends or any particular style or character to how the fights were designed how they were choreographed in gundam there's a lot of focus on keeping the Gundam um, center frame a lot of the time. I think this works very well with the situations in which Amuro is reacting. However, it does mean that a lot of the time we don't quite get the sense of how potent of a pilot Amuro is uh, because we don't see as much action or, um, or proactivity from him and that that's where the juxtaposition of Shar um, gets to be much better uh, unfortunately some of the actual shots of Shar zipping around the battlefield uh, don't quite hold up to our <laughs> 21st century level of scrutiny I, I was kind of expecting uh, some sort of uh, silly sound effect to accompany them. I, I do think that... A little that Benny Hill music? Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> um, like a little mouse squeak, maybe? <laughs> I really think that the visualization um, of how 
these objects move through uh, space three-dimensionally is very, very good. Um, it reminded me a lot of kind of a hard science fiction of the time uh, where of authors and, and artists really taking a moment to not just think of an idea or think of an image, but then take that kernel and extrapolate out as to how it would affect everything around it or how, how it would grow or how do we get there. Um, and that felt very uh, in tune with, with the whole production. As opposed to, um, and this is not a, a, a positive on one and negative in the other, It's I think it's just very stylistically, it, it, the fights made it feel very science fiction, as opposed to something like Star Wars, where the, um, particularly the lightsaber battles are done in a way to make it feel very reminiscent of fantasy, to make it feel very much about mythology, good and evil, and mm -hmm. less about kind of the world. Did anything about it strike you as particularly 70s or particularly anime. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure there are <laughs> trends in the way combat is drawn and choreographed over time, just as there isn't anything else. But uh, did anything stand out? It's hard to speak to that, particularly in the anime side of things. Um, so much of what I'm familiar with uh, comes after First Gundam. Choreographically, I think that there's a lot there um, that stands the test of time and has continued to be used and, and emulated, um, probably also imitated to a lesser extent. When it comes to choreography in, in terms of just how things are used in general, uh, it, it does feel distinctly Japanese. And I think that's because there is a, a bit more of a well-roundedness. In other episodes, we have judo. There is kind of a grappling aspect. There is a blade work aspect. There's a firearms aspect. It has a, a level of spectacle that is a little bit more all-encompassing. It reminds me in some ways of the Super Sentai. Uh, because of just the sheer numbers of ways to go about telling the story. Uh, whereas I think in other uh, tr uh, filmmaking traditions that I'm familiar with, uh, extant in that time, in the 70s, you've got, you know, the Bond films where we're just starting, like judo has become in fashion, so everything is like judo and boxing. Uh, and, <laughs> but it's very much flavor of the day. Uh, and you have the uh, Hong Kong action cinema uh, having its very own, very well-rounded, but very specific and very unique style that is instantly recognizable. I think the stuff in First Gundam uh, is a great taste of kind of where everything uh, was headed. I think that well-roundedness to First Gundam, I can't say that was revolutionary uh, because I don't know enough of the context to make that kind of claim, but I think it was damn well in, in the right path. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me back. Our pleasure. I hope that you are able to hold the image of the first Gundam choreography in your head because we're going to ask you to come back when we get into Zeta and we progress through to look at how it evolves over time. And then this is really exciting, but it's many years down the road. <laughs> Eventually, we are going to have a director switch and we are going to see a very different take on Gundam choreography. I'm very excited. Are you excited for the next step? 
Heck yeah. Woo. A lot of that has to do with being excited to research the 80s. We also have a stack of Animag magazines, which is an anime magazine from the 80s and 90s, I think. Pre-internet days. You want to read about anime? Subscribe to a very niche magazine. Yep. And some of the covers have characters from Zeta on them. And the minute I saw them, I was like, I want to meet this person. (laughs) So... Nina saw a picture of a Gundam character with short teal colored hair and immediately said, I want that hair. Short teal hair, lavender lipstick, and a like purple and pink sweatshirt thing. Full 80s. <laughs> we are fully excited to go full 80s. But first... Next week, we will talk about implications, since Tom stopped me from talking about <laughs> them this week. And then we'll have... Three weeks of Gundam compilation movies with a new guest who is new to Gundam and can help us decide whether the movies stand on their own. Next time on episode 1.36, Implications. Implications for the future of Gundam. Our favorite parts of the 40th anniversary interview. A voice actor reviews the original voice work and the dub. A fan answers one of our early series questions possible inspiration for Kika, Cats, and Let's in American Funny Pages, and more research. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSP Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, First Gundam hasn't aged very well. It's entirely skippable. On any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. suit philosophy hey if they weren't expecting philosophy they shouldn't have started watching gundam (laughs) i feel like there's a question on the tip of my tongue about this (laughs) (laughs) did you catch that in the um in the woody episode woody goes do you want me It's it's more for you. It's not for them. It's not for them. (laughs) You get flashes of understanding of who Shars of who Shar is. Who Sharizard is.
please cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> please, yeah, please, snip, snip. So without the ability to use their feet in zero gravity, uh, it, it, this is a, a very fun choreographic exercise. For... I found this on the map for showing the ability to use their feet. Sometimes Siri just turns on. Wow, what did Siri look up for us? Um, how to use your feet in zero gravity, or something about footwork in zero gravity. That's amazing. Where should I go from? I don't even know what I was saying there. Let's go back a minute. Oh, sorry. Bad choreo is is a that's that is an artistic judgment. I'm willing to make it. I just want to put it out there that that is that is a personal opinion. Um, I can say from my own experience doing martial arts, raw speed is not very useful. What is more important is moving at the right time so that you arrive where you want to be when the opportunity exists. The fastest people don't look like they're going very fast most of the time. And then all of a sudden they're where you don't expect them. <laughs> Tom laughs because we're thinking about our karate instructor. Yeah. <laughs>